Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we always make sure we're in fellowship. We are told in Scripture that whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand His Word. He is the one who stores it in our soul, recalls it to our mind for application at the right time. So we need to make sure we are in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together in freedom to study your word. We thank you for this country in which we live, where we have these wonderful freedoms, such a unique environment in all of human history. And now, Father, as we continue in this war against terrorism, we pray that you would guide and direct our leaders, that you would give not only the political leaders, but also the military leaders the wisdom and the discernment to make good decisions, wise decisions, and that they may be successful in their endeavors. On the other hand, we pray for those with whom we are engaged in this war, that they would make mistakes, that we would discover where they are hiding, and that we might destroy them. Father, we pray for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might utilize this time of uncertainty in the nation to use as an opportunity to witness for you, that we might demonstrate through our own lives, through our own stability, the reality of trust in you. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we could understand the things that we learned today, that as we look at this episode in Ruth, that the principles there would be real to us, and that the Holy Spirit would help us to see how they apply in each of our lives and in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to the second chapter of Ruth. Second chapter in the book of Ruth. And we continue our study of this short story or novella in the Old Testament. This chapter, Ruth chapter 2, is going to portray for us two important aspects in the spiritual life, both of which were true whether we're talking about Old Testament spiritual life or New Testament spiritual life. And in order to catch what the author wants us to see here in terms of spiritual principles, I think it would help if we thought about this book as a four-act play. Each chapter represents a different uh, scene of action, different conflict, different uh, problem, and different solution. And as we do that, the drama intensifies as we go through this book until we come to the resolution of the theme at the end of the last chapter. As I pointed out before, the theme of this book has been suggested by numerous people to be redemption because of the central place that Boaz plays. Boaz is called in the book a goel in the Hebrew, and that means uh, a kinsman redeemer. It is the second of two Hebrew words used for redemption. And a goel is a personal kinsman redeemer and is a picture of the redemption that our Lord Jesus Christ provides for us because he became our kinsman at the incarnation. He took on the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on true humanity in order to go to the cross and die as our substitute. 
But though redemption plays a central part in this book, the key theme of this book, as I pointed out, has to do with Naomi's situation. The focus is not on Ruth. The focus is not on Boaz, except as the drama plays out in their lives, it resolves the basic conflict in Naomi's life. And that is her response to her adversity, her suffering. That is the central point. It starts with Naomi losing her husband and her two sons, and then the resolution of the book focuses on how God feels that. He transforms her cursing and her bitterness into blessing and joy. And so the book focuses on the universal question of why God allows suffering in the universe, why a good God allows evil to occur in the lives of people. The principal doctrine then covered here is how God transforms cursing into blessing. It begins with a microcosm look, a look at how God works this out in the lives of three individuals, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So we begin with the microcosm, the suffering in the life of Naomi, and then we can extrapolate from that by analogy to how God is going to transform the cursing that is taking place in the nation Israel at, that, at this time in history into blessing, and then further extrapolate that into how God transforms the human race that is under the cursing of sin, the curse of sin, the judgment of sin, into blessing. So it's the whole story of how cursing is transformed to blessing. And one important principle that we need to recognize again and again in this book is it doesn't happen overnight. When people go through suffering in life, the immediate thing we cry out is, God, take it away from me now. Not, not just now, but five minutes ago. And yet we see that the resolution to sin and evil and judgment is not something that happens instantaneously. And yet, even when the judgment is coming, God has already provided the solution, and he is already working to transform the cursing into blessing. We can chart this out almost in the sense of a chiasm. In the sense of a chiasm, first of all, we're confronted or faced with the personal suffering, the personal suffering in the life of Naomi. The cursing in the life of Naomi, she loses husband and two brothers, and they're outside the land of Israel. They are in the land of Moab, a land of paganism, a land that is uh, dominated by idolatry, a land that where there is no blessing, where there is no, uh, where, where they are barren, there are no children, there's no life, and there's got to be a transformation from that. And that personal suffering in the life of Naomi is also a picture of the cursing in the life of Israel at this time, remember, we have located this during the period of the judges. And during that time period, Israel continuously goes through this cycle of disobedience, discipline, and then deliverance. And God is always working, but these cycles kept deteriorating, and the nation kept declining into greater and greater apostasy because of their rejection of God's provision. From one generation to the next, they would reject God and then God would have to take them through the same disciplinary cycle again. So there is cursing in the life of Israel because of their disobedience to God, and that's the reason there is evil in the world, is not because God is the cause of evil, not because God has made things evil, because a righteous God can produce nothing, create nothing but righteousness. And God did not create evil in the universe, but God did create creatures who had the capacity to make bad choices, to make evil choices. Because God gave creatures free will, there's the potential for disobedience, and that disobedience is what introduced evil into the universe. So God is not the one at fault, but God is the one who, in his omniscience, knew all the knowable. In his omniscience, he knew that man would sin. He knew in his omniscience that Lucifer would sin. And he began to provide a solution. He had a plan from eternity past on how to solve the problem of evil in the universe. And as we pointed out in our study of evil, is that only Christianity has a true solution to the problem of evil. All the other world's philosophies and world religions either deny its reality ultimately or they end up making it an eternal principle of the universe, which means that you can't ultimately distinguish between good and evil at all. 
So we've seen that Christianity and the Bible are the, is the only basis for solving the problem of sin. So we have the personal cursing of Naomi. Then we have the problem with the nation, cursing in the life of the nation Israel. And then that, in turn, is, a, is analogous to the suffering, the cursing in human history. That mankind is cursed because of Adam's sin. When Adam disobeyed God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he plunged not just the human race, but all of creation under the judgment of God. And so these are the, the personal cursing in the life of Naomi is but a microcosmic picture of the overall cursing and judgment of sin in human history and on mankind. But the solution to the problem of human history takes place at the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin by dying spiritually on the cross where he paid the penalty for man. Remember, the penalty for sin is spiritual death. The consequence of spiritual death is physical death and suffering and transformation of the created order from the perfect order that God intended into an order that is less than perfect, an order where there are thorns and thistles, where animals are now carnivorous, and where there is now pain and suffering in in the world. So Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and there he solves the sin problem by dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That took place when darkness was on the, on the cross from 12 noon till 3 p.m. So the solution for evil then takes place at the cross. And then that is further worked out in history over time. The solution to the nation's problem, the cursing in the life of the nation, comes through blessing in, the greater, in, in David as a picture of Jesus Christ. And this takes place through the child that is born to Ruth. So this is the picture here that we must not forget as we come face to face with this episode in these four chapters in the life of Ruth. This is why this is recorded. It's not just some nice story about some young girl who's destitute and impoverished and has lost her husband and and she finds a, a wonderful, noble man of integrity to uh, solve her problem. It's not just a romance. It's not just a story of God's solution in her life, but it is a picture of how God is the one continuously working behind the scenes to transform our cursing into blessing. As we think about this in terms of of a drama, we need to think about it from the viewpoint of the author. The author is writing it almost like a drama. You think about it. You go see a play. You see all of the actors out on the stage, and you watch what happens, and you see the, 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 what appears to be the cause and effect between the actions on the stage. But what you don't see is the stage manager behind the scenes who is directing everything. You don't see the director who has uh, put everything together in a certain way. And that, in a sense, is how this is portrayed. God is behind the scenes. You don't see God brought out onto the stage here as you do in other narrative. The, the writer is much more subtle than that. He is picturing what is going on in the life of Ruth in the same way that you and I experience life. We don't see God revealing himself overtly in the day-to-day affairs of our life or interceding uh, directly in the affairs of our life. And we face certain situations and certain problems and adversities in life, and we wonder, how is God going to solve the problem? How are we going to to handle this adversity? How do we deal with this particular crisis? And we have our our basic problem-solving devices. We have the promises that God has given us, and we learn to trust God, claim the promises, mixing faith with the promises of God. But while we do that, we don't know how God is working. And that's how this writer is approaching this drama. Ruth does not know how God is going to solve their problem. Naomi is is caught up in self-absorption and her own bitterness at her own loss. And Naomi is the one who demonstrates character derived from the Bible doctrine that's in her soul. And she's the one who's going to step out executing the faith rest drill. But she doesn't know how God's going to solve the problem. She's just going to trust God and do what God says to do. And yet, behind the scenes... We see that God is already working providentially, arranging the circumstances 
in a remarkable way. And the writer is going to bring this out in, in the ways he uses language and in the subtleties of the text. But they're not so subtle if you know Hebrew and understand the, the nature of the drama here. So the second chapter here is going to focus on Ruth's, Ruth's response to the crisis in their life now that they are back in Bethlehem. And it's going to focus on what God is doing and what God has already done behind the scenes in order to resolve the crisis. Now, as the reader, we already know what's going to happen. We know, and the writer knows that. He's clued us in, and he's going to clue us in. For example, in the first verse of chapter 2, this should really be in parenthesis. Because the writer's cluing us into something that Ruth is unaware of and Naomi is unaware of. So as the audience, we know something that the players on the stage do not know. And because we've been clued into this, we can just sit back and enjoy the drama, knowing how God is working things out. In verse 1, we're told, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. But see, that tells us God's already provided the solution in Boaz, But Ruth doesn't know that, and Naomi doesn't know that. So we get to watch how they're going to discover God's solution to their crisis, and we'll discover how Ruth is operating on the doctrine that's in her soul and the character that that develops, and it will give us some tremendous insight into our own spiritual life. And when we come to verse 12, we'll see a remarkable indication of how God works in our lives through suffering in training us in the spiritual life. That must remind us of another principle that I highlighted at the introduction to the book. And that is that if you look at the scope, the panorama of Israel's history, it can roughly be laid over the experience of the individual believer as they advance in the spiritual life. For example, the call of Abraham is analogous to God's call to the believer to, to salvation. The Uh, election of Israel is comparable to the election of the believer. And then there is the redemption of Israel that takes place at the the, uh, exodus. And the redemption is based on the shed blood of a lamb that is without spot or blemish. And that's comparable to the redemption of the believer who is bought with the uh, blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a, a picture of his spiritual death on the cross. And then we have the uh, initiation into a new life, which is pictured, the, which is the baptism by the Holy Spirit for the church age believer, and is pictured by the by Israel crossing the Red Sea, being baptized or identified with Moses at their at their Exodus, and then after that they are given the law, and that is a picture of the fact that we don't have God's absolutes until after salvation. God's standards for how to live come after salvation; they are not a prerequisite. For salvation. Salvation is not based on what we do. Salvation is based on God's grace at redemption. And then after we are saved and we are adopted into the family of God, just as Israel was adopted at this time, they are called the firstborn of God, then we are told how we should live as members of the royal family of God. And so everything from the, from the giving of the law at Mount Sinai all the way through in the history of Israel in the Old Testament is designed to give a picture of of what takes place in the soul of the believer in the church age. That is the application. That's not the primary interpretation. That is the application. So Ruth is a picture, not of salvation, but is a picture of what takes place in the sanctification or spiritual growth of the believer. So there are two key doctrines that are going to be emphasized in this chapter. First of all, from Ruth's perspective, the faith rest drill, because she is demonstrating In her response, her trust for God, she's going to do what the law says to do, and she's going to expect God to deal or to provide the blessing. Secondly, what we see behind the scenes is God's chesed. That's the Hebrew for his faithful, loyal love. It's a word that is so pregnant that scholars argue and write long theological treatises on just exactly what the meaning is. It incorporates a vast array of concepts, mercy, compassion, 
love, faithfulness, loyalty, all of these are wrapped up in the idea of God's chesed love. And it is that chesed love that forms the backdrop for this entire epistle, I mean this entire book, because chesed love is an unconditional love based upon the promise of God back at Sinai. It's not an emotional love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a love based on attraction. It's a love based on the character of God. And so what we see is God in his loyalty, in his chesed love, he is continuing to be faithful and to provide solutions even when people are unfaithful. Even when Naomi is rejecting God's grace provision and she's reacting and bouncing off the walls in self-absorption and bitterness because God let this horrible thing to her happened to her, and so she's whining and crying and complaining to everybody she can uh, get a hold of about how God's been unfair to her. And yet, in the midst of that, God is demonstrating his faithfulness, his loyalty, and his love. So let's begin by reminding ourselves of the importance of this. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. That is what we see here, God keeping his loving kindness. That's the translation of chesed. To a thousandth generation to those who love him and keep his commandments. And so this is his blessing on Israel grounded in his chesed love. That's the backdrop. Now let's look at Ruth 1. Ruth 1.22 is really where the division occurs. That's where the paragraph break takes place. And the paragraph really begins in 122 and goes down through uh, chapter 2, verse 12. That's where you should mark the breaks. Chapter, our verse 22 of chapter 1 gives us the setting. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, one thing I want you to notice here is, is the use of this, wor- this word, returned. Returned is from the Hebrew word, shuv. Looks like this in the Hebrew. S-H-U, and this is a soft B, almost translated like a V. And it means to, be, to return, and it often means to repent in the sense of turning back toward God. And it is used in two senses, a negative sense. It is used of Israel turning to idols, and then it is also used of their turning back to God from idolatry. Now, it has many other meanings as well, the most common of which is what we find in this passage, and that is simply the act of returning from one place to another. It's a reference to movement from one place to another. But the writer in this first chapter has used this word ten times. He uses it in 1, Now, whenever a writer uses a word that frequently, it is designed to get our attention. They didn't have bold type or italics in which to emphasize certain words when they wrote the Scripture. So often if they were emphasizing something, they would use these literary techniques like repetition. And all of a sudden you see a word used ten times in 22 verses. You ought to at least wake up and say, why in the world is this guy using this word again and again and again? Now, obviously... Naomi is returning to the land from which she began. That's the concept of return. If I, uh, if I uh, go back to Texas, I'm returning to Texas because I came from there. But if I say, well, I'm returning to uh, Montana, that wouldn't make a lot of sense because I've never been to Montana. See, that's the thing that catches our attention here is Ruth is said to return to Israel. But Ruth has never been to Israel. She's a Moabitess. So again and again, this writer uses this word return even to, uh, even to apply it to Ruth who is not returning. So that causes us to stop and think a minute and say, well, is he bring, using this word in order to 
conjure up some other concept in our thinking in order to get us to think of something else as, as a backdrop. And this is, this is true because he wants us to remember when he uses this word, and it's, it has this other sense of repentance and turning back to God, and it is to remind us of what is happening in the broader context of Israel as they started off in judgment because there was a famine, and now there is blessing in the land because the people have turned back to God. And now Naomi, who has been out of the land, and that is a picture of being out of fellowship, is now turning back to God and going back to the place of blessing. So that's the picture here. So it's not just a simple Naomi return, but the use of that word ought to bring something else to our mind. And the second thing I want to focus on is that the focus of the action in verse 22 is still Naomi. She is still the central player as she has been all the way through chapter 1. But a shift is going to take place in the next, in the next couple of verses. Second thing I want to point out is not just not just the nuance of returning or repenting, turning back to God, but also the timing. The author makes a point out of the timing here. He says, So Naomi returned with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter in law. So we're introduced these are the characters in, in uh, Act two. They returned from the land of Moab, that's the action, and they came to Bethlehem, and then we're told the timing. It's at the beginning of the barley harvest. Notice he doesn't say at the middle or just at the time of the barley harvest. It's at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, the timing here is the first coincidence, and we're going to put that in, in in quotes. It's the first apparent coincidence. The writer is almost winking at us. says, notice this. They just happened to come back right at the time of the barley harvest. They could have come back at any other time in the year, but they come back, and this occurred just at the uh, end of March, beginning of April, uh, according to our calendar, just when the grain for bread is ready to be cut. And so we see, again, God's providential work in timing. See, God's timing is everything. Not our timing, but God's timing. Uh, Isaiah 40:22 says that, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. It's that concept of waiting in the faith rest drill, that we have to relax and let God work out the solutions according to His plan and His timetable and not try to push things according to our plan and our timetable. God has providentially worked. How do we know that? Because Naomi has heard a report while she's out of the land in Moab She has heard a report that there is now food in Israel, that God has visited his people again. And we studied that metaphor, and that was a picture of the fact that God has now restored blessing to the land, and it was beginning to rain again so that there was now going to be uh, plenty of food. The crops were going to come in, and there would no longer be a famine in the land. So there is... The suggestion of timing here. This is the first of many coincidences here. And the principle here is God's timing is always the best. We must wait on the Lord for His timing, not our timing. So we're told they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now that's also going to be important because as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that, that although the writer doesn't talk about Ruth going out day in, day out through the two or three months of the barley harvest, all the way to, Pente- to what is Pentecost, but, which incidentally was when this book was read in the uh, ceremonial calendar in Israel. They always read the book of Ruth at Pentecost. That um, uh, she's out working for three months. This is... a young girl who has a tremendous work ethic. She has a fantastic sense of responsibility and obligation to her mother-in-law. And this is a result of the fact, and once again demonstrates the chesed that she has come to understand. See, that's the backdrop. It doesn't use the word chesed here. Remember, remember Naomi first used the word in talking to Orpah and Ruth and said, may, may God deal with you in chesed as you have dealt with me. And so here we see an example of how Ruth has reached a level of spiritual maturity because she understands this concept which is foundational to what we call impersonal or unconditional love. That is, going the extra mile, doing that which is best for the object of love, not because of who they are or what they have done, but because of who we are 
and what Jesus Christ, um, but because of the own character in our own lives built on the grace principle and our understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. This is really, you ought to put a parenthesis around this because this is the author talking behind his hand, so to speak, to the audience. He says, now, now remember this. Naomi had a kinsman. Now, this doesn't. This is not a co- close kinsman. Really, he's of the family of Elimelech, so he's an in-law to Naomi. He's not a blood kin to Naomi, but he is to Elimelech. Now, he's not a close blood kin. Blood kin. The word here is moda in the Hebrew, and it simply means a close relative, as it's used later by Naomi herself in describing him. In 2.20, there she says, the man is our moda, our close relative. He's one of our closest relatives, but he's not a brother to Elimelech. And the reason I make that point is because it was to the brother of Elimelech that the responsibility for the Leveret marriage would fall. So he's not directly in that line. He is secondary, second or third or fourth out, but he is just a, a relative. Now we're introduced to him. He is a said to be a man of great wealth. And the word here, the phrase here that's translated great wealth, is that he is an ish gabor in the Hebrew. A, 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 that same phrase is used over in uh, Judges chapter 6 to describe Gideon. And there it's translated noble warrior. It's also used in... Other passages, for example, in Proverbs 31.10, it describes a man of some standing in the community, a man who has position and honor, a man of integrity. So we're told that, that he is a man of great wealth. That's probably a bad translation. That would, is suggested by the fact that he's a landowner, has a fairly large agricultural operation going but the emphasis of Ish Gabor is that he is a man of integrity. He is a man of character. He is a man of, of nobility. He is a man that can be trusted. And we're going to see how that works out in the, in the uh, development of the plot. So we learn here that, um, that there is a kinsman, a close relative. Second, we see that... Um, He is a man of integrity. Third, we see that he is from the clan of Elimelech. He is from the clan of Elimelech. He's not just the family, but the clan. So he's an extended relative. And fourth, we see that his name is Boaz. Now, we're not exactly sure what Boaz refers to, but some suggest it has uh, affinities to a a, a cognate in in, Israel. Egyptian. Others suggest that it's a shortened form of the term Boaz, Yahweh, which has to do with strength. And both the both words indicate something to do with his vigor, his strength, and his character. And what we see here is the emphasis in Scripture is not on externals. It's not on position. It's not on prestige. It's not on financial status. It's not on the the external things that our culture puts such an emphasis on. The emphasis is on his character. Emphasis is on his integrity. Emphasis is on his soul and how his soul has developed because of the application of doctrine. So we're we're going to expect something from Boaz. Now, there's something else that's lurking behind the scenes here in terms of application, and that is that Boaz is from Bethlehem. And so Boaz serves as a type of Christ. Remember, he is going to be the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And he comes from Bethlehem. Just as Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem and comes from Bethlehem in his humanity and is our kinsman redeemer. So when we look at Boaz, we're going to see certain elements there in the relationship of Boaz to Ruth that portray the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church. And then we come to verse 2. In verse 2, all of a sudden the focus shifts. It's no longer on Naomi, it's on Ruth. Ruth becomes the principal uh, character in the drama. She is the one making the decisions now. She is the one demonstrating initiative. Verse 2 we read, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, 
please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she, that is Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, there's a couple of things we have to note in terms of getting the uh, getting a corrected translation here. She begins with, it's translated, please let me go, and that is a cohortative of request. And that is correctly translated. It's not, I will go. I think some translations have a statement there that would be a, see, a cohortative is not what we have in English. In, in English, we only have an imperative in the second person. So we, te- we can order somebody to go. But in Hebrew, we have both a third-person imperative and a first-person imperative. And the first-person imperative can be translated either as a request, let me do something, or as a what's called a cohortative of resolve, I will do something. And I think some translators take it that way, but, but Ruth is demonstrating her authority orientation here and respect for the elderly. And she goes to Naomi, for whom she has now accepted responsibility for, and, and she says, let me go to the field. And it's a request that she go out and take care of them. And it demonstrates something about Ruth's character, that she recognizes her responsibility to take care of her mother-in-law. She's sensitive to that responsibility, and she is going to take whatever steps are necessary in order to fulfill that responsibility. But she just doesn't go out in some sort of independent manner and say, well, now what am I going to do How, and just explore any particular option. She demonstrates by her actions that she understands something about the background of the Word of God. She wants to go out to the field and glean among the ears of grain. And then she says, I want to come back to the gleaning in a minute, but first we have to get a corrected translation. After one in whose sight I may find favor. And the Hebrew word for favor is the word hen, which means grace. So she is looking for grace. And this clues us into the spiritual dimension here. She is looking for God's gracious provision in their life to solve the problem. And she's going to do what she's supposed to do, but she doesn't have a clue how God is going to supply. But she is basing this on her understanding of the Old Testament law. In the Levitical law, in the the, law, Mosaic Covenant, God provided a welfare system for the nation based upon their responsibility and on the principle of grace and generosity from those working in the fields. Leviticus 19.9 informs us of this. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. In other words, don't squeeze every drop out of every penny that's yours. Don't get, try to get the most you can get in any transaction. Leave something over to the other person. Operate on a little grace. Let everybody win something. And so when you go out and you reap the fields, don't, don't reap the very corners of the field. Leave some grain in the corners and, and don't try to ca- catch up every morsel, that, every grain that drops in the fields. Leave some there so that those who are poor, those who are impoverished, the, the widows and the orphans can come out to the fields and they have something to glean. They can go through the fields and they can harvest some uh, barley, some wheat, whatever, for themselves. And that's the principle. Uh, so there's a responsibility there. But at this time of apostasy, one would not expect that everyone in Israel was doing this. You would have some farmers who are just tightwads. They're not obeying the Lord. They don't have any concept of grace orientation. They're sitting out there saying, well, they're poor. You know, they can let the poor help themselves. I'm certainly not going to give them anything. If they were doing what they were supposed to do, they wouldn't be under God's judgment. They wouldn't be, uh, they'd have a job. They wouldn't be suffering like that. And God recognizes there are legitimate problems and legitimate reasons for people who are impoverished in that society The widows and the orphans had no one to supply for them or take care of them. And so God took care and established a means based on grace to take care of them. Leviticus 19.10 goes on to say, Nor shall you glean in your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. That would be the foreigner who is in the land. That's what Ruth is. She's a Moabitess. She is not a native Israelite. So they are to leave a certain amount in the fields so that the poor and the non-Israelite can come in and find food. 
Leviticus 23.22 expands this. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. And then in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 24, it's repeated again. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, that is, for the foreigner that's in the land, for the orphan and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So God has a welfare system established in order to take care of those who are doing without. Now, Ruth is going to trust God in this. God has established a procedure in the land in order to take care of the needs of the widows and the orphans. So she's going to trust God to supply that, and she's going to go out, and she's going to go from farm to farm outside of Bethlehem looking for somebody who is applying the Word of God in their business life so that they are leaving the, field, the corners ungleaned and leaving some barley out in the field so that she has something to, uh, to, to work on so that she can get some, some food for her and Naomi. So she is trusting God. Now, this introduces us to the fact that the faith rest drill has two dimensions to it. It's not just something that's purely passive. It's not just I'm going to trust God and fold my hands and do nothing. It's, you're going to trust God. You're going to do, in many cases, there's a responsibility dictated to the believer. And the believer is going to perform in his responsibility, and he is going to count on God in order to solve the problem. And God is going to move behind the situation, but he's going to be active in doing whatever God says to do, and he will be passive in the sense that he is not relying upon his action to bring the results, but he is relying upon God to bring the results. For example, if you want to have your grass cut, or this time of year you want to have your your leaves raked, you're not going to just sit in your house and pray day in and day out for God to uh, come and uh, rake the leaves and clean everything up for you. You have to do what is your responsibility in taking care of your home. And you go outside and you work hard, and then God in the process uh, provides the solution and everything gets taken care of. That's the same kind of situation here. Ruth is going to go out and start looking for somebody and trusting that God in his grace is going to provide the solution to the problem and she'll be able to find, to find food. So she demonstrates her trust for God and she proceeds to the harvest. Verse 3, So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, the, the translators haven't done us a fair job here. They, they've kind of hinted at it. Which they say she happened to come to the portion of the field. But, but the writer doesn't say it that way. In fact, if, if most translators translated it correctly, a lot of Christians wouldn't buy their translation. Because he's really using tongue-in-cheek humor in order to get our attention. It says... Um, she happened to come to the portion of the field. Literally in the Hebrew, it reads, her chance chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, most Christians say chance. There's no chance in the Bible. We all know God's in, God's in charge, and, and the Jews were that way. They didn't believe in chance. For example, in Proverbs 16.33, we read, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So if the lot has every decision from the Lord, then there's no such thing as chance. So what's the writer doing here? He's looking at it from our perspective, and he uses this phrase of chance in order to get our attention. And it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek humor. He's winking at us. He said, see, see, God's work, already working behind the scenes, and this is another example. Not only do we see God's providential care in bringing them back to the land just at the right time, but now... As, as Ruth goes out, she has no idea where she's going. She doesn't know who the relatives are. She's not aware of Boaz, and Naomi hasn't told her anything. She's not aware that, that Boaz is a kinsman out there. He's completely out of her mind. He's a distant relative, and she just happens to end up at Boaz's field. And you see how God is continuously at work behind the scenes in order to solve the problem. So... Ruth's faith rest drill is operating, and God is fulfilling his part. He is being faithful. His chesed 
His faithful love is being demonstrated in the background. So she comes to the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the family of Elimelech. But now she doesn't know that. She's clueless to this, and she started off early in the morning. We'll see from the response of the, the overseer that she goes out early in the morning. First light, she's out there trying to find somebody. She goes from, from one area to the next, and, and none of these other farmers want to let any of the poor come in. They say, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want any homeless beggars wandering around in our fields and disrupting our harvest. So go find somebody else. And she comes to uh, the field of Boaz and very politely requests of the overseer if she can glean in the fields. And he gives her uh, permission, which shows that, that not only is Boaz grace-oriented, but Boaz, as a good employer, has treated his people in grace and inculcated into them the same grace orientation that he has. And this is a great example for Christian employers. You know, I think that if some of the things that we learn in this passage about employers and employees were actually applied, we wouldn't really have any labor disputes. Because what you see here is a man who is operating on unconditional love, on integrity and loyalty and real genuine care for those who work for him, and they respond to him in kind. Now, then, Ruth 2.4, we come to the next coincidence. You know, the first coincidence was they just happened to come back to the land at the beginning of harvest. The second coincidence, she just happens to end up in a field that is owned by a distant relative. And the third coincidence is that sometime in the morning, Boaz just happens along and Boaz just happens to come up when Ruth is visible and Ruth is available. Verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, Notice we see his care for those who work for him. He says, May the Lord be with you, which is not just an empty saying, but it is in, 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 in at this time, this is like a prayer, and it indicates that he is concerned for the spiritual welfare of those who work for him, and they return that. They say, may the Lord bless you. They are, these aren't just sayings. They, they're not just saying, well, Lord bless you, which is what so many people do today, and they don't know what they're saying. They don't mean anything by it. It's just a nice greeting. This isn't just a casual greeting. This is a significant theological statement and shows that he is concerned not... Uh, he is concerned for those who work for him, not simply for their physical welfare, but also for their spiritual welfare. And this is something that employers should take to heart. They should be praying for their employees. They should be concerned about their employees. They should, uh, that, that should not take precedence. I'm not saying that takes precedence over the job, but it is not merely an economic relationship. There is more to it than that. They're concerned about the, he's concerned about the individuals, and they in turn respond to that care. Then in verse 5, as Boaz comes up, he sees his servant, and the word here is not evid, the typical word we would expect for servant, but na'ar, which means a young man. So it's emphasizing uh, an age difference there. He comes to the young man who is in charge of the reapers. This is the overseer. This is his uh, business manager out there in the field. And he says, whose young woman is this? So what's happened here is just, just in terms of timing. He comes up probably mid-morning. It's 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. And he comes up, and they, out in the fields they would have these, um, uh, like a lean-to or just a shelter where the workers could come in and get out of the uh, hot sun and get a drink of, of water and then go back out into the field. And it's just at the time that Ruth has taken a break from the morning, that she's in this, uh, probably in this shelter, and Boaz comes up and he's talking to his overseer and looks over and sees this strange stranger to him and says, well, well who is she? Now, it would, think about this. It would be a typical first blush reaction for any, any uh, employer comes up and he sees somebody sitting down and he hasn't seen them work all day to get the impression that this person is just, just sitting around uh, not doing anything. And it's the overseer will correct that, say something that would correct that uh, misunderstanding if indeed it was there. But he says, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. So she's known. She has a reputation. What she has done in terms of her desire to care for her mother-in-law 
has gone out through the grapevine in Bethlehem. Everybody knows who she is. She's this new girl in town, Naomi's daughter-in-law, and she could have stayed back in Moab, but she desired to come here, and she has taken on the responsibility of taking care of her bitter mother-in-law. And this tells us, too, that, that the, the uh, overseer expects Boaz to know who she is. Her reputation has preceded her. Now, he relates the conversation they had at the beginning. And she said, that is, the overseer speaking, says, well, when she came this morning, she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And what she is requesting is that as the reapers go through and they bundle up the sheaves of the barley, that some would fall out. And she wants to follow along and and pick that up. She wants to go out into the corners of the field and she wants to reap in the corners of the field in order to get what what she can in order to supply the the, um, uh, food needs for her and Naomi. And then he adds, Thus she came and has remained from the morning... Until now. So from early morning she came. She's not shirking. She's been working all morning and she just now took a break. And so this is going to impress Boaz, as it should us, with her work ethic, with her industriousness, with her sense of responsibility. She got out there and she's walking behind the uh, uh, reapers all morning and she's been working hard and she's just now taking a break to come over and get a cool glass of iced tea. And. Uh, just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. And this is an em- em- emphasis here, again, on her faithfulness. She's being faithful to Naomi. She is demonstrating what Hesed is in her life. So this is a picture of her trust, a picture of how she has come to understand Hesed, and then she is going to, um, in turn, rely upon God to take care of the situation. Boaz is now going to demonstrate his character. He is going to demonstrate that he understands chesed as well. He has impersonal love to all mankind, and he is going to demonstrate that this is not just an absence of mental attitude sins, but he is going to emphasize that this includes generosity. Here is this probably not well-dressed. She's been working out in the field. She's, she's uh, sweaty. She's hot. She's dirty. Uh, she is impoverished. She's not dressed in the latest fashions. And she's been out in the fields, and yet she may not look very attractive, but Boaz is going to treat her in extreme grace. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. So he's saying, Pay attention to me. I'm going to give you some precise instructions. He walks over to her. Uh, she doesn't know who he is in terms of a relationship. She just would know by now that he is the one who owns the land, the farm where she's working. He tells her, he says, don't go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maid. See, he's going to give her precise instructions not to go elsewhere. Don't look for sustenance somewhere else. I'm going to take responsibility for you. And he goes on in verse 9 to say, Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Now, this is remarkable. He's telling her, don't go anywhere else. Stay here. I'm going to take care of you. Not only that, you're not going to be confined to just picking up whatever's left over in the corners of the fields, but I want you to, to go behind the, the, the maids as they tie up. You'd have two groups that would go through. One group would go through and thresh, and the next group would gather up and, and bind, the, bind the sheaves. And then they did that. They would lose a certain amount of barley on the ground. And he's going to even come along and tell the, those who are, who are tying up the sheaves to, to make sure they left a lot behind. He wants to do a lot for her, and she, he recognizes that she's been uh, working very hard, and he is impressed with her character. And that's something that is so important, especially for those of you who are single, young ladies who are single, looking for a husband. You need to find somebody who's not impressed with how you look or how much money you make, but is impressed by your character, by your work ethic, by your diligence. This is what Boaz is focusing on. He is impressed by who Ruth is by her character, not by anything else, because at this point she is not very attractive. He says, uh, Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. And this is almost like one of the um, uh, first cases of anti sexual harassment mandates. He, um, 
although the, the main context here of touching you doesn't include it in a sexual way, it's, you know, uh, nobody's going to look down on you. Nobody's going to ridicule you because you're poor. Nobody is going to give you a hard time because you're out there. In fact, I'm going to tell them to treat you well. It says, when you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Now, that probably wouldn't have made the regular hired hands very happy because they would have to haul the pottery jars of water from the well in town out to the fields. And now she's been given um, free reign to go over to their water jars and to drink all that she wants. And so that is another example of his understanding of chesed, his understanding of impersonal love is that he's going the extra mile. He's going to do whatever he can to take care of her and to provide for her needs. And then she responds by demonstrating her own grace orientation. She has tremendous gratitude. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground. This is the Hithbael preterite of Hishtava, which is the Hebrew word for worship. And this isn't a worship in a religious context, but this is uh, her worship. She is demonstrating her gratitude to him and that she has found grace. Once again, it's translated favor, but it's the Hebrew word hen. And she says, why have I found grace in your sight? She, see, we have to go back to verse 2 where she says, I'm going to go out and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find grace. And now she has found a grace-oriented employer who is demonstrating grace to her. See, grace is the foundation of chesed. Grace is the foundation of impersonal love and unconditional love. If you're not grace-oriented, you'll never be able to function in terms of impersonal love and unconditional love because grace means undeserved, unmerited favor. And it means treating people not in the way they deserve, not in the way that, uh, that they perhaps ought to be treated, not perhaps in the way that they have earned, but is to treat them on the basis of absolutes. Why have I found grace in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And verse 11 reveals Boaz's character. He, said, he answered and said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. Says so Now he knows all about her. He is impressed with her character. He's impressed with her sense of, of uh, allegiance to Naomi, with her sense of responsibility and the way that she is caring for, for her. And she says, How you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. And then in verse 12 he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. In other words, this is another way of saying, may God bless you richly in terms of his logistical provision for you while you are working because you are going, uh, demonstrating tremendous responsibility. You're going the extra mile in terms of your responsibility. And may the Lord increase your return. But he goes further than that. And what he says at the end of this verse is really the hermeneutical key unlocking the interpretation of this whole paragraph. He says, May your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. See, he goes beyond just the physical responsibility to recognize there's a spiritual dimension here and that Ruth is exercising the faith rest drill and that impresses him because of her spiritual quality and her spiritual growth. And there's more to this phrase than simply a, a metaphor uh, utilizing a, a bird, an eagle in this case, an eagle who, and the way the eagle protects their young. So I want to take a minute and let's pick up this, this metaphor because it's used of, to explain God again and again in the Old Testament. Now, a couple of comments here. First of all, this is what's called a zoomorphism. Zoomorphism. It's like an anthropomorphism. Anthropos means man. Morphos means form, where you attribute to God something of the form of man that God doesn't actually possess in order to teach something about God's plan, procedures, and, and uh, protocol. But with a zoomorphism, you, you attribute to God something that applies to an animal that God doesn't actually possess. God doesn't have wings. 
You can use this next time you're talking with uh, one of the Mormons that comes by and knocks on the door and tries to use all the passages in the Old Testament in the eyes of God, uh, something passages that talk about stench in his nostrils, uh, the hand of God. See, God has formed just like we do. God looks like we do. God's a man because that's part of, of uh, Mormon doctrine is that... that uh, as we are, God was, and as God is, we will be. They think God is just an overbloated, deified human. But, see, then you go to a passage like this and you say, okay, well, if those passages mean that God has arms and, and eyes and ears, then, then God also has wings. So you go to all the passages where wings are applied to God because it's just a figure of speech to pick up a picture that the people were used to in order to teach something about God's protective care. And the love of God is a tremendous illustration of God's chesed taken from the realm of nature, taken from the animal kingdom. The people living out, working out in the fields, were fully aware of the birds. And we're not sure of some of these birds, whether it was an eagle or a vulture, uh, probably an eagle in, in these passages. For example, Exodus 19.4 this is the first time it's applied to God. God applies it to himself. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He bore them on eagles' wings and the pictures of the eagle flying. And, 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 and let's go to the next passage because this is what builds out the, the metaphor. Well, I've lost it. It's in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy... For some reason, I lost the passage. In Deuteronomy, it talks about the fact that, that, that God is compared to an, an eagle. And as the eagle wraps its wings or literally flutters his wings around the, the young in the nest, so God does that to, to the young. And the picture here is how the mother eagle trains the young eagles, the, the babies in the nest, to fly. And as they get mature and reach to that age where they can fly, she sits on the side of the nest and begins to flap her wings to get them to do to likewise. And they begin to imitate. But, you know, they don't know their own strength. And some of them, you know, the eagle's nests are high on a mountain crag or, or high on a cliff. And, and they get a little power going and they t- start taking off. They're going to flip right out of that nest and drop 80, 100, 200 feet to the ground and so much for the, for the baby. And that would make Mama happy. So what they do is, and this is remarkable, what happens is if, if the, the baby does that and gets a little extra power and pops out of the nest, then the mother flies down and flies under this and catches the baby on the back of her wings. That's the pinions. And the, that word is used in Scripture. And catches the baby on the back of her wings and then carries that baby back to safety in the nest. And that's the process of how the mother eagle is training the baby for maturity. And that's the picture here, is that God is training us, just as that mother eagle does, and when we fall, God is the one who provides the protection and comes under, sweeps us up, but he is the one who constantly guards and protects us. And this metaphor is used numerous times in the Scriptures. And that's the picture in Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. See, at that stage, Israel is an infant and she is being taken care of by God. The psalmist uses the same image. In Psalm 17, 7 and 8, Wondrously show thy loving kindness. Notice the context of chesed in Psalm 17, 7. Wondrously show thy loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at thy right hand, from those who rise up against them. Keep them as the apple of thy eye. Hide them in the shadow of thy wings. It is a metaphor of God's chesed, his faithfulness in protecting the believer and his faithfulness in the way he works to mature the believer and to teach them how to trust him. So he is constantly putting us in circumstances and situations that require a little more trust, a little more confidence. And, and we may falter, we may fail, but God is the one who comes along to sustain us and to continuously protect us. And that's the picture that we have 
of Ruth at this first part of the chapter is as she's trusting God, God is the one who's taking care of her. And the same is true for us as we're growing and maturing, learning how to exercise the faith rest drill, trusting God. He is the one constantly in the background, constantly faithful, always there to take care of us so that that fulfills the promise of Isaiah 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary, and they shall walk and not faint. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the importance of faith rest, and to be encouraged by your faithfulness to us in every situation. And that you take care of us when we are trusting you. You are always present. You are always there. You're not going to let us fall on our face. You're not going to let us trust you and then have everything collapse. Father, we thank you that you have provided the ultimate solution for all evil, all suffering, and that is through the death of Christ on the cross who paid the penalty for our sins. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning without a sense of assurance, without knowing if they are going to spend eternity in heaven, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is for you to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that belief includes understanding that he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, were buried and rose again the third day. Father, we pray for the rest of us as believers that we would be challenged by the example of Ruth's faith rest drill as well as your faithful, loyal love. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.